Hello and welcome into episode 33 of the Orlando Drummer Podcast. It's good to be back with you guys after a few weeks off. My apologies for the delay in content or the, the bit of a gap there through November. Um, man, this festival got the, the best of me, the Tam Tam Drum Festival. In the weeks leading up to the festival right before I, I left, it was kind of the only thing I could think about and uh, I didn't feel particularly guilty about that. I think this festival deserved my full attention and it definitely got it. So in this episode, I'm going to recap the experience that that was this festival because, you know, I've had a lot of different cool moments in my drum career. I've done drum camps. Um, I've done clinics. I've done master classes. I've had more share. I've had my share of private lessons. That's for sure. I've done all of these these types of events and had a lot of cool experiences in the drum education world. But a true festival, I've never actually done that before. So I think by all definitions, this was probably the biggest single career event that I've ever experienced before. So I think that this deserves um, a conversation. It was it was a lot of fun. I learned so much. And for any of you guys who would ever hope to perform or play at a festival like this, hopefully I can give you some insights as to how this kind of thing works behind the scenes. Now, speaking of behind the scenes, there is actually a full vlog. It's a 30-minute vlog with tons of footage uh, from this Tam Tam Drum Festival, you know, all the way from me kind of vlogging on the way there, talking about my practice routine and the things that went into the preparation for a clinic like this, uh, then footage of the clinic itself, behind the scenes footage with guys like Dave Weckl, Virgil Donati, uh, Peter Erskine, all the amazing drummers that I got to share the stage with. Uh, that vlog is only for members of OrlandoDrummer.com, but this month is by far the best month to sign up for a membership on OrlandoDrummer.com. It costs absolutely nothing. You can get a 14-day free trial. That's twice as long as we normally offer 14 days for absolutely free you have access to the entire library of content including over 750 drumless play-alongs and drum lessons it's about 175 hours of content in total so imagine if you went to guitar center and you grabbed a dvd off of the shelf it's about three or four hours worth of content I've made about 50 of those over the last 10 years, and that content is all accessible on OrlandoDrummer.com to members. You can also access it through the ODTV members app that's available on iOS and Android. Just search ODTV. And when you start your account, you start your free trial. Make sure to use the codes that are linked in the description or on the screen right now. You can save up to 40% on the first six months of your monthly membership or 25% off an annual membership. There are, I don't know how many days left. I want to say about 10 days left in our member November sale this month. Uh, so please make sure to go check that out. It is the best time of year to sign up. And of course, you'll immediately be able to watch the Tam Tam behind the scenes vlog, a lot of cool footage in there. And we're going to tell some of the stories uh, from that video in this podcast today. So let's recap Spain's biggest drum festival. Now, the first thing I want to say is that there's not very many drum festivals in the world that are run as well as Tam Tam is. You see a lot of different festivals pop up over the years. Plenty of them come to mind. Obviously, Modern Drummer Festival, that's been running for a very, very long time. Um, there, there's a lot of different ones, but there's not that many. There's not that many drum festivals because it is very difficult to run and manage and put on an event like this. It's hard. It's really, really hard. It's a complicated event. Not only are you booking all of these different drummers from different places in the world, but you have to sell physical tickets. And of course, in the last five to 10 years, the challenge of live streaming and recording the content and releasing that content onto YouTube, it is as difficult as running any show that you could ever imagine, right? It's a multifaceted endeavor. 
And when you see a company or a brand like Tam Tam Percussion, who's able to successfully run and promote a festival like this for over a decade, it says a lot about their ability to run and manage an event. And I can tell you firsthand that being there and working with this team of people, you know, I don't know how many people are behind the scenes, somewhere between 30 and 50 people actually run the show. It was one of the most tightly knit, dialed in settings that I've ever been in when it comes to these kind of shows. I've played tons and tons of shows, ranging from big music festivals to small local venues, and it's really not that different. The drum festival felt a lot like playing a show at a house of blues or some sort of local venue or theater. It was as dialed in as any show that I've ever had. Everybody there just ran a tight ship and knew what they were doing. So first of all, shout out to Tam Tam for running an obviously dialed in festival. It is very difficult to do, and it's one of the reasons that they've had so much success over the last decade plus running this festival. Um, So shout out to them. It was really a joy to work with everybody on their team. Now, if you're someone who says, you know, maybe one day you want to play a festival like this or an event like this, you know, how does it happen? Well, while there are a lot of things that you can do to go chase down certain clinics, masterclasses, camps, or different events, this one was not like that. I actually got approached by Meinl. Um, Meinl approached me to sort of play this festival, and I think one of the reasons that I was a good fit for this festival is because I was the younger, social media-based counterbalance to some of the older guys that booked this festival. There were some legends on this ticket, including Dave Weckl, Virgil Donati, Peter Erskine, um, Damian Schmidt. Uh, I'll put the entire list up here so you can see everybody that played this this festival, but it was a lot of older guys, a lot of seasoned guys, veterans who have, you know, a resume that is 10 times longer than mine. So I think in many ways, I was an appropriate counterbalance to some of these older guys. Um, Not that I had anything to do with that decision. Meinl simply had a relationship with the guys who run Tam Tam Drum Festival, and they dropped my name in. The Tam Tam guys said yes. So Meinl contacted me on behalf of them, specifically Norbert, um, who is the European Meinl rep, similar to Chris Brewer here in the U.S., Uh, So between me, Chris Brewer, and Norbert, we sort of talked out some of the details and decided, yes, we can definitely make this happen. So huge shout out to Meinl. They are the reason uh, that I was actually able to go and make this festival happen, and they funded a huge majority of the trip. So really, really grateful to them. Uh, Of course, I did have the support of all of my other endorsers, Evans and Pearl. Minel Stick and Brush, um, you know, all of these companies had had some version of support that they offered to me, but it was really Minel that booked this and made it happen. Uh, so I'm really, really grateful to them. And to be totally candid with you, this is one of the advantages of having um, in endorsements. You know, there are certain scenarios where your endorser will have a connection that you do not. I don't know personally the guys who run the Tam Tam Drum Festival, so even if I wanted to go hunt them down and send an email and see if I could book a festival in the future. You know, there was no way I was able to contact these people. So it was a good example of where an endorser can really pull some strings for you and make something happen. So very grateful to Meinl and all of my other endorsers uh, who supported me in this really, really cool trip. So now let's talk about the preparation for this trip. You know, this was a very traditional drum clinic and I've done... Uh, I've done fairly big drum clinics before, not in a festival setting, uh, but the biggest clinic I ever did was to about 500 people. It was in Clinton, Missouri. I think Missouri was the state. Uh, It was in Clinton, Missouri. This was maybe three or four years ago. I don't have much footage from that that clinic, but it was basically a a PASIC day. So many different college and high school music programs got bussed in to one large college, um, and so they had four or five different drummers, but I was actually the only drum set player there. There was a guy who did a clinic with timpanis, another guy who did a clinic with um, bells and marimbas, so I was actually the drum set player that day. And that was about 500 college kids. That was probably the biggest clinic that I ever did. Tam Tam was about double that. 
Now, clinics are interesting because there are many different approaches you can take to building a drum clinic. The way Tam Tam had it set up is sort of you're given one hour and you can do whatever you want with that one hour, which is somewhat intimidating because to steal an analogy from a fantastic drummer and educator, J.P. Bouvet, you know, art can be difficult without limitations. If I hand you a piece of paper, I'm borrowing this analogy directly from a drum clinic he has. uh, If I handed you a piece of paper and said, make me art, Well, that's kind of difficult because there's no parameters. But if I said, make me a piece of art uh, that has to do with airplanes, well, all of a sudden that's a lot easier. And if I said, draw an airplane uh, and make it in black and white and only use a lead pencil, well, all of a sudden it's easier to be creative within those parameters. And so unfortunately in the case of Tam Tam, there were no parameters. It was just like, you have an hour on stage, you know, hope you come up with something cool. So I decided to go sort of down the middle, a traditional drum clinic, which is always going to be three main things that you'll that you'll use to build a drum clinic. Uh, there will be song performances, obviously. There will be some sort of sharing of information. So that could be a drum lesson in any style that you choose, but it's normally wisest to make it broadly applicable to everybody that might be in the audience. So not too easy, not too advanced, somewhere down the middle. Um, And then, of course, you want to leave some time for questions to discuss the gear that you're playing or allow the people who paid um, to see you perform to get to ask a a question of some kind. So those were the three things that I had to leave room for. And I went with an even split. So about 20 minutes of song performances sort of broken up uh, throughout the hour, then 20 minutes um, of of a lesson that I taught and then 20 minutes of Q&A. So the balance was somewhere around there. That was my approach to this clinic. Now, I had mentioned on this podcast and got some great feedback from some of you guys. About, about about the fact that this was fully translated, because obviously, um, you know, Spain is a Spanish-speaking country, so just for the sake of the people in the audience, this entire thing was translated live, and I wasn't sure if this was going to be clunky in person, to have someone translating over top of me as I was speaking, but fortunately, uh, the guy who did the translating, his name is Juan Olivia, I believe is his last name, man, he was awesome, so fast, so precise, um, an excellent translator, and actually did an interview with him, which will come out on the Tam Tam YouTube page um, in the future. But yeah, he was an awesome translator. So it was a bit smoother than I anticipated. Um, but yeah, I kept my my the speaking parts of my clinic very short just for that reason. And I think it everything landed fairly well. And my apologies if I sound a little bit nasally in this podcast. I got a brutal sinus infection on the way back from Spain. I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but still recovering. So very sorry if you can hear this in my nose and throat. I'm trying to act normal, but uh, my nose hates me right now. So now let me talk a little bit about the preparation that went into this festival. I had about two months notice uh, before this festival actually happened, maybe two and a half months or so. But there's really like two parts to this, because for the first month, maybe six weeks, I knew that it was going to be a big festival in Spain. And of course, I did my research and watched many of the other Tam Tam performances. You can watch all of the past performances, like every single one of them are on YouTube. So I went through and found some of my favorite drummers and watched what they had done, sort of took some notes on the clinics that I liked and some of the parts of certain clinics that I did didn't like. And just tried to, you know, structure this uh, in a way that I thought would be appropriate for the festival. But then about a month before the actual, you know, fly dates for the festival, I realized that the lineup had been announced. And this festival included drummers like Dave Weckl, Virgil Donati, Peter Erskine. And I realized that this, uh, this had a bit of a heaviness to it that I didn't totally anticipate. So things got a little bit more serious about a month out. And I began doing uh, two-a-days, meaning Every single day, I would perform the entire clinic from start to finish, one full hour. Well, not quite the full hour because obviously I'm not going to answer made up questions to myself, but at least 40 to 45 minutes, meaning I would in my studio alone 
play through the songs exactly in the order that I was going to play them for the clinic. And then I would actually teach the lesson out loud to myself. Um, in hindsight, I probably should have recorded myself teaching that lesson, but for some reason, I just didn't feel the need to do it this time. So it was me in this room, about six feet behind from where I'm sitting right now, and I would just speak the clinic aloud uh, with a very short set of notes next to me on my laptop, exactly how I planned to do it for the clinic. And I would do that once in the morning and once in the afternoon. Uh, there were a few times where I would run through the set three times in a day, but something very interesting happened uh, this last time, or these last couple weeks before the actual clinic happened. The material began to feel stale. I had practiced so much that I felt like I could do this whole clinic, every song and all of the speaking parts, I could do all of it in my sleep. I actually found myself bored and somewhat disengaged in the practice sessions. So for the last two weeks before the clinic, I actually stopped practicing. I would take off three days at a time and then do the set once through. Then I would take off another three days and do the set once through. And man, that felt really good because when I took off those three days, I would return and all of a sudden the clinic felt fresh again. The material was exciting to share. Uh, the notes felt good to play on the kid. I would have a lot higher of an energy level. So when I performed at the clinic on November 7th, I think the last time I had actually played through the set was five days before that. I had five days of no drumming whatsoever. Didn't play a single note. And if you had asked me a few months ago if that would be recommended, I'd probably say no. But because I had so much lead up time to this festival, I was really able to just get the reps into a point where I earned the ability to take off five days before the clinic and just let everything sit. And so it felt so, so fresh on stage. Highly recommended for any performance that you have coming up. If you have that amount of time to really get the reps in, get the sets in, uh, and just make it feel that comfortable. So I felt really proud of myself that I was able to seat this information so deeply into my mind that I could almost perform the clinic in my sleep. And man, that took away so many nerves that I potentially could have had for playing in front of a thousand plus people. So I felt really, really good about that practice routine uh, and was fortunate to have such a long lead up in time where I could really just, just uh, pound this set into the ground, you know? Okay, so now let's talk about the trip itself. From my front door, so the Uber ride to the airport in Orlando, Orlando uh, flew, flew down to Miami, Miami flew to Madrid, uh, Madrid flew to Sevilla, then Ubered from Sevilla to the hotel. That trip alone from my front door to the hotel uh, in Sevilla, Spain was 18 hours. It was the longest I have ever traveled before. And I've been out of the country multiple times, but never to Europe. So this was a very, very long travel day. I'd say one, one insanely stupid mistake that I made was not bringing a rolling suitcase. I had a big backpack and then just like a large duffel bag. It's only a five day trip. I didn't really need to bring that much stuff. But there were, there were parts in the Madrid airport where it would give you a little sign to tell you how long it would walk from this gate to that gate. And at one point, the walk said 47 minutes. So I'm walking with like, you know, a 40 pound backpack and a 40 pound duffel bag, like 80 pounds of just walking through this airport. My calves were so destroyed by the time I got there. I was genuinely nervous of how comfortable I would be playing drums, but fortunately that was fine. Uh, but that was a mistake I made for sure. So 18 hours of travel. Um, I finally arrive in Sevilla and I get picked up uh, by the minor rep that was there and a couple other people that worked for Tam Tam. Um, and of course I thought, I've just flown overnight. It's like one or 2 p.m. in Sevilla, but I only slept three or four hours on the plane. Then the performance was the following day. So I fully assumed, we're just gonna go to the hotel, I'm gonna sleep real hard, and then I'll feel great the next morning. 
No, we went straight to the venue because we had to sound check. And not only did we have to sound check, but we also had to do uh, an interview, which was with the translator, Juan Olivia. Fortunately, he's fantastic on camera. So it was a very smooth interview, very comfortable. But man, was I just foggy and out of it. And so I don't know how that interview went, but hopefully it went smooth. Um, so after that interview, we went backstage, sound checked the drums. Fortunately, all the gear was already there. The kit was not perfectly tuned up, but it was close. Symbols were in the right places. I had sent them a photo of my drum set. So all the text there had built up the, uh, the actual kit. So it wasn't a lot of work on my end, but I got to play through a couple of songs, sort of hear the venue. Um, empty was really cool, obviously big, big boomy sort of sounds. I don't know if you've ever played a venue with nobody in it, but just the absence of the bodies, man, it, it's such a, such a big, uh, just a heavy reverb kind of sound. So that was really cool. I got the sound check. Everything sounded great. Um, and then you leave all of your gear in place. And what they do is they take your drum riser, which is on wheels and they just roll it up. So Everything is exactly as it is when you sound check it, right? So my laptop is in the same place. Uh, the place where I plug my headphones into is in the same place. So it's really nice. You get to fully explore the setup and make sure that you love everything as it is. And then once you're done, they roll your riser in the back and they roll it back up to the front when it's time to perform the next day. Um, so that was basically day one. I did get to sort of bump shoulders with um, Virgil Zanotti and Dave Weckl was there, I believe. Actually ran into him a couple times at the hotel just getting coffee. But it wasn't like a heavy networking day. There wasn't much to do other than this interview and then the sound check. And then I was finally able to go back uh, to the hotel and get some sleep. And I think I slept 13 plus hours, man. It was awesome. Um, now, fortunately, I was not performing the next day until I want to say 5.30 p.m., maybe 6 p.m. So I had plenty of time to sleep in, go up, you know, wake up, get a good breakfast and just sort of start the day slowly. And I finally made my way over to the venue around noon. Um, and I got to catch the tail end of Virgil Donati set. I caught uh, Gergo Borlai's set, Manu Reyes, um, Rafa, forgive me for skipping his last name or not remembering, uh, but I caught many, many sets there, uh, so that was really cool, just to get in the the drum spirit, you know, to get the vibes going, hear some live music, just like if you've ever played a gig with a band, it's nice to watch the people playing before you, just to sort of get the energy flowing, so uh, I got there several hours early and was able to really just get in drum mode, um, stretch a lot, get my blood moving, so I had plenty of warm-up time at the venue, it was a ton of fun. One particularly cool part of the day was when we got to do like a signing table. So this was um, Gergo, Peter Erskine, Dave Weckl, all of us, all eight drummers that were performing got to sit in a line um, at a table outside. They did it outside so everybody could take their masks off. We could have photos and things like that. Uh, and Meinl was cool enough to print up these little poster cards of me, like, like postcard sort of size. Uh, I had my photo on it and my entire kit set up with all my symbols on it. Uh, and then we had some markers to sort of sign those papers. But it was just such a, first of all, it was a trip to be sitting next to Gergo Borlai on my left, Dave Weckl on my right, you know, and with fans coming up. Like, what a cool experience, man. That, that was so, so awesome because in so many ways, I still always feel like, the weird YouTuber who works from home in a black box. You know, I don't have this long list of incredible albums that I've recorded. Um, I don't have these insane stories from touring the world. You know, I'm a YouTuber. I work from home in a black box all the time. So to be in a place like this with drummers like this is, is still trippy to me. It's still wild. So that was really, really cool. And I got to shake hands with, you know, a few hundred people, take dozens and dozens and dozens of photos and um, hear some really cool stories about how people had found my YouTube videos or which video made a big difference for them. I even met some members of OrlandoDrummer.com. So that was a really, really cool experience. It was about an hour, but so, so fun just to get, you know, I don't know, plugged in 
into the culture in, in a certain way and that I'm meeting these people who actually came um, from, from all over the world. Not everybody was from Spain. There were tons of people that had traveled from Italy, from Portugal, from France, all over the European Union. So that was just a really, really cool experience. And it was, it was a blast to get to meet and shake hands with so many awesome drummers. So now it was almost time for the performance, and I had the misfortune of following Brother Gergo Borlai, who, to be honest, Gergo is one of my, he is one of my favorite live drummers. He has this effortless power uh, that's sort of in the wheelhouse of like an Eric Moore or an Aaron Spears, where it's like this bombastic, heavy, heavy playing. Another great drummer who has that kind of feel is my good friend Iman Cervantes, who plays for uh, Andy Grammer. An effortless power to their playing that that's Gergo for sure he just combines it with this like godly speed that he has as well um so I had to follow that guy which is very intimidating but Gergo was an awesome guy very very nice uh it was a pleasure speaking with him a few times and so I got to follow him and just before, uh, or, or as he was playing, just before my set, I actually went up to the top balcony um, in this venue, watched him play from up there to really hear the sound. Incredible sounding live. Um, just, an, just an awesome mix at everything his kit was dialed, so that was really cool. And then it was my turn. So I went down to my dressing room, sort of did some final little stretches, got my drumsticks and began warming up. Um, and yeah, man, things were underway. One of the coolest moments that happened of the entire week that I was there in Spain was in the minutes before walking out onto, sta onto the stage. Because in that, that particular moment, I don't have anything to do, right? I'm performing five minutes from now. So my job is to just mentally prepare, take some deep breaths, get my hands warmed up, and make sure that I'm ready to go start performing in just a few minutes. But you realize that this is go time for like 30-something people. There's just a swarm of, of audio technicians, video technicians, uh, mixing engineers, drum techs. There's just this swarm of people that are, that are bustling around backstage. And in that moment, you realize that all of this, at least right now in this moment, is for you. It feels like there was... 30 or 40 people working for me. And man, that is so, so deeply humbling to have an experience like that. Um, because there's a part of me that just feels the, just a, an overwhelming sense of gratitude that everyone's here working so hard. And at least in this moment, they're here for me. And that made me feel really special, really grateful, just overwhelmed with gratitude. So that, that was a cool moment that I was happy that I had the, the mental clarity to stop and just appreciate how cool that was to see these people just in their own way, via their own skill sets, supporting something that I've worked really, really hard on. So that was a fantastic feeling. It was a really special moment for me. Um, and I'm just glad that I had the clarity to stop for a second, to look at those people and just experience that gratitude. Of course, I did thank them profusely over the course of the festival, but that was a special moment, man. I was happy to have that. So then the festival, or sorry, my performance begins. Walk out on stage. They did a little, uh, an opener in Spanish, which I didn't understand. I'm assuming they said some kind things. Uh, and then I walked out, man. Now, the thing I did not realize was 
This is filmed. It's all filmed. I knew that. But the lighting was so intense that I genuinely could not see the audience. And I mean like at all. Like I tried to make out a face or two in the audience. Nothing. So that ended up being actually kind of cool. Because one of the things that I had done in my studio uh, in preparation for this clinic was turned on all of my big uh, video lights, all of these giant LED panels and big soft boxes. I had turned all of them on and kind of blinded myself, imagining that this might be the setup. I didn't know how bright it would be, but I knew there would be lights in my face. And I'm not always used to playing with like big lights in my face. So uh, I would actually like blow out my entire drum kit when I was practicing. And it felt really similar playing live. It was like I had accurately recreated the environment that was this, uh, this performance on stage. So it was weird, man. It was not difficult for me to mentally go into my studio and just pretend that I was there. And so it, it felt pretty comfortable up there for sure. Now, obviously, the most nerve-wracking part is like note number one, right? When you first come in uh, on a metal song, I went with a Nick DiPiro song as the opener, uh, Scarlet, I believe, was the first song. Um, you know, you just want to get through the first song clean, because if you can get the blood flowing and kind of get, get in the zone, get the vibes happening, then everything kind of smooths out after that. And so I was actually very happy with my, my first song performance, and it set the tone that I was going to perform decently well today. At least that's how I felt when I played, and especially given that I hadn't touched a drum set in five days, right? I hadn't played any of these songs uh, except for the soundcheck itself. So to be honest, if I were to assess my playing during the clinic, I played, if, if for me, a perfect playing day is 10 out of 10, I played like a 9.5. And this is all relative to me. I'm not saying that I played, you know, with some degree of excellence that was just, you know, impossible for me to describe. But for my own personal playing, it was as close to perfect as I could possibly hope for. If I had made five more mistakes in the set that I did, I still would have been happy. Because obviously you give yourself a little bit of leeway anytime you have a live performance, you know, to, to demand utter perfection from note one to the closing note is kind of ridiculous. You expect that you're going to hit a couple of rims, that you're going to have a couple of sloppy kick drum placements, maybe you're going to catch the hi-hat on the way up for a fill. All of these things are going to happen, but overall, I don't know how I could have played it much cleaner. I think if I played the festival five more times, that this time that I played it, might have been the cleanest one that I could ever hope for. So I was so, so grateful to the universe, I suppose, that it was just a good playing day for me. So I felt really, really good about the actual performance part when it came to playing drums. And by the way, huge shout out to um, all of the artists who wrote the music that I played. I played, I want to say three or four Nick DePiro songs, a couple of which I wrote with him and some others that I borrowed from his uh, Twitch account. He does a lot of um, live sessions, like writing different songs on Twitch. The song I played was called uh, Twitch Number 69, um, so you can actually go download that for free, or it's donation-based, but really, really cool drumless sort of track uh, written by Nick DePiro. Then I played Wet Texan and Scarlet, both of which I actually co-wrote with him. Um, so those were the metal songs that I played. I also played a song by Alex Rudinger, a song called Detached. Huge shout-out to Alex. He's, he's produces some really cool electronic music. Um, and then I had a pop song called Shake It Off that I performed in a, a Minel video a few years back. Uh, that was written by Joe Hodgen, who works with me on OrlandoDrummer.com, um, and Stockholm was the band there. So huge shout out to all the artists. I was really happy with the mix that I had. We had everything from like indie pop to Nick DePiro style metal. So I felt like it was a really cool mix of music. And yeah, man, felt good about everything as far as playing drums on stage. Just couldn't be any happier. And then there was the clinic portion as well. 
Not gonna lie, it was definitely tricky to teach drums as it's being translated in a foreign language over top of you because I could hear Juan translating. I could hear his mics coming through the main audio system of the venue. So you definitely had to simplify some of your words because you don't want to you don't want to over teach in an environment like that i thought it was in everyone's best interest if i say as little as possible to translate or to put out the information so i definitely had to simplify some of my language uh but just to give you a brief overview the clinic that i taught was ultimately on patterns and how Drummers like to collect patterns and trade them around almost like they're, they're these collectible Pokemon cards in a weird way. But the reality is that many drummers will get a new pattern or a series of patterns, and they assume that if they learn that pattern and get it down, they'll be able to play what Benny Greb played. If you get the Benny Greb pattern, you can play what Benny Greb played. Or the Aaron Spears pattern, you can play just like Aaron Spears. But the reality is patterns are just words within the language of drumming, and there's so many more things that you can do when you get a pattern. Almost to the point where a single pattern or a small collection of patterns could be an entire year's worth of work for you, a year's worth of practice. But you have to know what to do with the pattern when you get it. So in this clinic, I had a four-step process where I broke down four individual things that you can do with any new pattern. And the result of this is that you end up not needing that many patterns, even though the internet, or just let's just say Instagram alone or YouTube alone, is like this broken fire hydrant of patterns coming at you. In reality, you only need like one or 2% of the patterns that you can find on any given minute online. And that pattern, it, it, it contains enough information, if you know what to do with that information, to last you a year or more. So I broke down these, these four steps that you can take anytime you get a new pattern, and that was sort of the, the concept of the clinic because I thought this would be applicable to the young drummer as well as the seasoned drummer. So from all the feedback I got, this was a very well-received topic. Everybody seemed to enjoy it. So yeah, it was, it was a, a good topic. I'm really glad that I went with it. I thought it landed well. Uh, so yeah, that's what I did for the teaching portion of the clinic. And then, you know, I don't know what else there is to say. We did uh, about 20 minutes of questions. I played my final song, Curtains Dropped, and phew, you can take a big sigh of relief, man. It was nice. Um, what was really cool was right after that, that clinic, right after my performance, I went backstage and I happened to run into uh, Peter Erskine. And to be honest, of all of the drummers that I got to have fun conversations with, uh, which was pretty much everybody on the ticket I got to speak with at least briefly, Peter was one of my favorites. He was such a kind guy. You know, him and I Immediately, I ran into him in his dressing room. So we just sort of sat there. Um, him and I just had a drink and, and talked for at least an hour before his performance came up. And we didn't even talk about drum industry stuff. We talked about we talked about family. We talked about what it is to be a professional musician and the toll that that can take on a family. Uh, my wife and I are trying for a kid right now, and Peter has two kids. And so he told me about what it's like to raise kids as a professional touring musician. And we discussed some of the advantages of being like a YouTuber, that, that I have the option to stay home, to not go on the road, and how, how different that, that his life would have been um, if he had had an option like that. And so it was really cool to connect with a seasoned veteran, but a guy who's also a family man who shared a lot of values with me uh, and had some really cool advice and great insights on what it meant to be a professional musician uh, with a family and trying to raise children. So him and I connected on a lot of different levels, and he was just a, a really, really cool guy. Um, so he had his uh, performance. Well, another one of my favorite moments from this weekend, though, was after he performed, uh, it was Dave Weckl's set. 
And so Peter and I sat next to each other side stage watching Dave Weckl. And Peter would just whisper over into my ear and he would tell me a story from back in the 80s about Dave Weckl. And in a certain in a certain sense, kind of talking shit about Dave Weckl, who he's been buddies with for three or four decades. But like just giggling side stage with Peter Erskine, hearing stories about Dave Weckl as Dave Weckl is 20 feet in front of us playing a drum clinic. That was really cool. I will absolutely remember that uh, that moment for the rest of my life. That was awesome. So shout out to Peter and everyone else involved. There was there was nobody uncool in this entire event. I made friends with everybody. So um, it was just an absolute blast, man. So to wrap up this trip, you know, to, to give you an idea of what I did for my time in Sevilla, um, Meinl actually asked me if I was okay coming out for one day and then turning around and flying home. And I said, you know, if I'm going 5,000 miles away from home, I would love to stay a few more days and sort of enjoy enjoy the city. Uh, so they actually put me in a different hotel for three more days, um, sort of in the center of Sevilla, Spain, a much more authentic experience. So authentic, it's like when I open the door to my hotel, immediately nobody speaks English. So that was a bit of a rough one because uh, I had to rely heavily on my translation app to get around. I, I speak Spanish decently well, but I'm far from fluent. So as soon as a conversation gets past the, the first two or three sentences, I get a little bit lost. So um, I had a translation app that was really, really helpful. And so I spent a lot of time exploring the city, getting some incredible coffee. Um, I did some clothes shopping. I went and spent half a day looking for a cool gift for my wife. And and just really got to plug into the city. So that was very, very cool. It was a super authentic experience in these three days following the performance itself. But one really cool thing that I wanted to make sure I included on this podcast was actually my last night there, just before uh, getting on a flight in the morning uh, to head back to America. You know, I went out and I found this place called basically it was called Almeida Square. Um, and it's where a lot of younger, like college age kids sort of hang out. It was, it was a little bit on the, the younger side, but I thought if I was going to meet anybody randomly in Spain, probably better that they would be my age and maybe some musicians, like who knows? So I walked maybe a quarter mile through these weird back alleys in Sevilla and I arrive at this place called uh, Almeida Square. And, you know, I get some food and I get a drink and I'm just sort of exploring the area. And I happen to walk past this small little bar with a guy playing guitar. And he's very good. He's playing authentic, like, flamenco guitar. Uh, but he's, he's around my age, like 30-something. And so in my broken Spanish, I sort of asked him, I, I said, hey, man, you're very good at guitar. Would you mind if I took a video of you? Uh, I'm a musician from America. And I just said... I, I'd love to have a video of you to put in my vlog because I'm a YouTuber. And he said, sure, absolutely. So I sit down and um, I'm having a drink with this guy and sort of filming him play guitar. And he says, hey, man, my, my friends are all musicians and they're all going to come here uh, in the next hour or so and get a drink. I'm, I'm meeting them here. So if you want to hang out, um, it's all musicians coming and they're all around our age. I said, sure. Like, I don't know what else I'm going to do tonight. So I ended up spending the next five or six hours sitting outside a bar with guys my age, musicians my age, trading music stories, playing authentic flamenco guitar. Everyone's taking turns singing. And it was such a cool, authentic night because it felt a lot like if I had been born in this country, these are the type of people I would be friends with. This is a, a, a living example of what my life might have been like if I lived in a place like this. This is something I'd love to do on a, on a Saturday night, you know? And so it was a really cool, authentic experience. The guys were very, very kind, uh, at least as, as far as I could tell with the language barrier, but um, I think they enjoyed my company. I certainly enjoyed theirs. It was a really, really cool night. Now, here's where the sinus infection comes in. Weird thing about Spain and Europe in general, 
90 plus percent of people smoke cigarettes. It is mind blowing. It's like when you turn 12 years old, they just hand you a pack of cigarettes. So everyone smokes cigarettes and I quit smoking cigarettes almost 10 years ago. Um, I smoked it from a teenager up into my early 20s and I quit when I was like 22 or 23. Haven't smoked a cigarette since, but you know, being in this environment around all of these people, I said, you know what? I'm gonna smoke a couple cigarettes. Like when in Rome, right? Or in Spain. So I smoked two cigarettes. Said my goodbyes to everybody there. Um, had a great time. Just thanked them for their hospitality. Um, you got some cool videos of, of them. And then, uh, yeah, I walked back to my hotel. And the next morning, I woke up, getting ready to go to the airport. And I had the most, like, inflamed, destroyed sinuses. Oh, it was just misery, man. And I was so thankful that it wasn't COVID because I would have been stuck in that country for at least two weeks. But I had to go get, get a COVID test to come back into the U.S. Um, no, no matter what, everybody has to get tested when you're returning into the U.S. So negative COVID test, whew, good to go there. And I figured I just had a sinus infection. Um, I actually had a, a sinus surgery when I was a child. Um, my sinuses do not drain very well, so I'm very susceptible to sinus infection and upper respiratory problems. But anyway, um, fortunately, did not have COVID, just had a brutal sinus infection, and here we are nearly two weeks later. I'm still recovering from this thing. Um, but with all of that said, totally worth it. I would smoke those cigarettes again with those guys sitting outside of that bar. It was so much fun, and it was just a perfect ending uh, to that trip. And with that said, I think that's a perfect ending to this podcast. And again, if you want to follow up and see some of the footage from this event, see some behind-the-scenes footage of the performance itself. Um, you can definitely uh, see that at link in the description for the full Tam Tam vlog. It's members only on OrlandoDrummer.com. But again, 14-day free trial for this uh, for the remainder of the month of November here in 2021. Cost you absolutely nothing. And if it's not for you, you can cancel anytime. No obligation whatsoever to stick around if you don't like it. But I think you will. Thank you guys so much for watching this episode of the Orlando Drummer Podcast. I will catch you in the next one. Later.